This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Today, our scripture is Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, everybody. It's really great to be able to worship with everybody this morning, even if it's virtually. Um, My name is Cole. I'm one of the elders here at Emmaus, and every once in a while I get the opportunity to preach. I'm thankful for those opportunities that that I do have, so I'm thankful to be here this morning. And just like Lauren said, we miss you guys. Um cameras and lights in your face is no company for uh, actual people. And so just as Lauren said, we are looking forward to, we're, we're exploring ways that we can gather together again safely and, and in a responsible way, because we do want to protect everybody uh, with all the coronavirus things going on. Um, and we can't wait to see uh, everybody in worship side by side, even if that's six feet side by six feet side. Uh, we're looking forward to, to when we can do that again. Um, but even in addition to all the coronavirus happenings, we're living in some really tense times right now. I guess as, as I walked here this morning, there's helicopters flying over because um, of just that we're living, the reality that we're living in some tense times. Um, We've seen horrible abuses of power and acts of racism that have led to protests and even riots as as our nation demands systemic change. Um, So while these acts of racism that we've seen recently and also over the years do and ought to make us long for and work for change together, it's times like these we're reminded the most clearly of the reality that we have a God who doesn't leave us in our confusion. He doesn't leave us in our suffering. We have a God who suffers alongside of us so that he understands us in every single way. There's not a single way in which our God can't relate to us and sympathize with us. He he not only hears our cries, but he answers them in his own suffering and the victory that he has in his own suffering. And so we serve a king who's not only with us in our rejoicing, but also in our suffering and especially in our suffering. Uh, so that we might, as, as Andy said last week, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And so my prayer this morning is that we could run to our King and seek to understand Him better so that we might rejoice with Him in our sufferings and so that we can all stand and work together with our black brothers and sisters who are tired and hurting right now. And so that said, we just wrapped up a short sermon series on Titus, We're beginning another short sermon series on the Psalms, and honestly, I don't think that there could be a better time to jump into the most emotionally raw book in all of Scripture. So John Calvin, he aptly calls the Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. 
And that's because there's not one human emotion that's left uncovered within, it, within their pages. Uh, just like Ben was saying, they, they give us a platform to, to talk to God whenever we're broken, whenever we're hurting, whenever we're rejoicing. Any emotion, these psalms give us a platform. They give us a language and some verbiage to communicate with our God. Um, and so I think it's really appropriate that we're starting a series in the Psalms right now in such an emotionally charged time with coronavirus, with protests, uh, with demands for change. Uh, yeah, it's a great time to be jumping into this book. Um, and so, yeah, these Psalms, even more importantly than, than giving us this language to, to talk with God within our emotions, these Psalms, they're, they're a collection of songs about Jesus, they're a collection of songs about Christ, our good King and our God. And so before we jump in, let's pray for the Spirit to work in our hearts this morning because we need Him to be encouraged. We need our discouraged hearts to hear uh, this message of hope that we find in these pages. So pray with me. Father, we're grateful that we get to gather together, um, whether that's in our living rooms, whether that's a few people here in the mansion, whether that's um, with a few uh, friends and neighbors, whether that's our family, or even, even if it's uh, if we're alone on our couch. Um, I pray that we know and realize that, that nobody here on this video is worshiping alone. They're worshiping together. We're worshiping a God who unites us together as one family in Christ. And so as things have been tense, as things have been discouraging, as things have been hurtful, I pray that you would breathe a message of hope into our discouraged hearts. We need you to accomplish that this morning in us. I pray that as we jump into the Psalms that you would engage our emotions, that you would engage our thoughts, that you would turn them towards truth, and that you would turn them towards hope. And so, Spirit, I pray that you would uh, accomplish a work in us that would uh, help us to leave this morning rejoicing in you in the midst of all the craziness that's going on along, that we would be focused on, on your hope, the hope of your kingdom, and your greatness and your glory. So in your name we pray, amen. All right, so like we said, we're transitioning into a short series on Psalms to kick off the summer. Um, and this morning in particular, we're going to be in Psalm 1. Um, and so the cool thing about Psalm 1, along with Psalm 2, they both serve as kind of a joint introduction to the whole book of the Psalms. Um, and uh, this book uh, often isn't given enough credit um, for the role that the Psalms have played in, in the early church. Uh, James Johnston, which if you're looking for a good resource uh, to walk through the Psalms with, then pick up James Johnston's book. He has uh, Psalms uh, 1 to 42. That's it. So after 42, you don't get any more. But um, that, that'll last us through this series. But it's been a great resource. Uh, but James Johnston uh, and Gene, by the way, I did some research on James Johnston, and he really loves to read Louis L'Amour. So I think you guys would connect. Um, but anyway, James Johnson, he said that the Psalms, that they're at the heart of the spiritual life of, for the early church. The Psalms are actually more quoted than any other book in the New Testament. Our New Testament leans heavy, heavily on the Psalms to develop key new covenant truths. And so in a very real way, the gospel has a strong anchor in the Psalms. And so in fact, after Jesus had risen from the dead, he's sitting with his disciples and he's eating a meal. And uh, Jesus says, we hear Jesus say to his disciples, 
Everything written about me and in the law of Moses, in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus sees his own life as a fulfillment to what we find in the Psalms. And so throughout his time on earth, before he was crucified, Jesus quoted the Psalms so much that Augustine, an early church father, he said that he called Jesus, he gave him a title. He said that Jesus is the singer of the Psalms. And so ultimately, we, we find, what we find in the Psalms is, is Jesus. And so from, from Psalm 90, which is the earliest Psalm that was written, it was written by Moses in 1400 BC, all the way to the latest Psalm, Psalm 126, which was written after Israel had come back from exile after 520 BC. The Psalms are a collection of nearly a thousand years of songs, spanning nearly every phase of the Old Testament in their composition, but covering the entirety of the Old Testament in their content. The Psalms encapsulate the entire redemptive thread of the whole Old Testament, leading up to and testifying about this coming King, Jesus. And so that said, I'm super excited to get, uh, just to have the opportunity to jump into the Psalms this summer. Uh, we're only going to be there for a little while, but I'm really excited uh, for this opportunity that we have. Um, and so let's get started. So read with me. Psalms. Blessed is the man. And so this psalm is so rich that we have to stop right there. Four words. Blessed is the man. So this, these are the four words that open up, that serve as an introduction to the entire book of Psalms. All the 150 chapters come after these four words. Blessed is the man. And so what does that even mean? What does what does blessed even mean? Um, and so it's kind of funny because our culture has even, has kind of had a resurgence of the word blessed. We use it more than we used to. I didn't grow up like saying, oh, you're blessed. Oh, you're not blessed. But now like we, we have it. If you go to Instagram right now and you do a search for hashtag blessed, you're going to find over 120 million posts. And from those posts, you're going to you're going to be able to understand pretty quickly what we understand, how our culture defines what it means to be blessed. And so if you were to kind of scoop up those like top posts, those most popular posts and the most recent posts, and if you're going to like synthesize them and summarize them, you'd find that being blessed is something like being off in a far place, far away place, not at your house, um, not in the park across the street, but a far away place. It's either a beach or it's a mountaintop. And if you're on a mountaintop, then you're like standing up, you're looking condescendingly down on the clouds. You have a latte in your hand and you have a toned, chiseled body that you never have to sweat to maintain. Hashtag blessed. Or it might be a brand new car. Hashtag blessed. Or a high school athlete being recruited to 15 different colleges. Blessed means worldly success. Blessed means looking good in the eyes of others. A lot of times you'll see that hashtag paired with quotes about uh, like setting your own destiny and doing what you want to do, but nothing else. And then, then you have the cynics who uh, have picked up on this and want to have a little fun with it. Like this guy who says, cucumber masks are so refreshing. Hashtag blessed. Or you have the uber-blessed who find blessing in everything, like Tom Haverford in Parks and, Rec Parks and Recreation, four green lights in a row. Hashtag blessed. 
Basically, blessings are a way to humbly, falsely humbly brag about all the things that you have. Hashtag blessed. And so, while I hope we can laugh at this, like there is some element of truth that's captured even in how our culture uses the term. What does it mean to be blessed? Well, what makes you happy? What makes you truly happy? Think of your happy place. Hashtag blessed. In fact, Psalm 1, it even uses a kind of different word than what we usually see for blessed. The word used here, um, it points to a happiness that comes from a deep sense of joy. And so this, this passage that we read, blessed is the man, we could very well say too that this psalm opens up by saying happy is the man or joyful is the man. And so I, honestly, I wish that we could say that we organize our sermons this way on purpose, but we just came out of a series in Titus where we heard about the good life that Jesus brings about in the gospel. And now we kick off the Psalms with hashtag blessed. Uh, it couldn't be a more perfect transition, but we did not plan it that way, um, just in the Lord's providence. But the good life we see that, we see here, because of hashtag the blessed life, the good life is not an idea that's exclusive to the new covenant that Jesus brings about. We find it also right here in the old covenant, in our Old Testament that looks ahead to Christ and the good life that he would bring. We find it right here. And we find it here because this is a life that God wove into the fabric of his creation it's how we were meant to live, how we were created to live for our fullest joy and for his glory. And so the Psalms open up by providing us some foundational elements of what it means to live the good life, what it means to be truly blessed. And so as we keep reading, we're going to see that the blessed life, it begins at the depths of the heart. It begins at the roots of where we find our value and where we find our happiness the place that we go to in order to find our worth and our value, that's the originating place of the blessed life. And so we're also going to see that uh, for those who are not blessed, according to this passage, it, it's no different. The fruit of blessing or not blessing begins uh, with the roots. And so uh, we're going to see first that the fruit of the wicked, wicked fruit, begins with wicked roots. And so keep reading with me. So, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. And so this morning, we're going to kind of work backwards a little bit. Um, and so I want us to pay attention to this analogy right here. The blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water. The tree is anchored in the very thing that brings it life, that's rooted in the one thing that it needs to survive and to thrive. But the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The blessed man's root Roots, they ground him in security, while the wicked, wicked man's roots, they anchor him in what? They anchor him in nothing. The wind picks up and they're gone. 
They can't even stand up to the most basic of elements as a breeze comes in and takes them off to, to nothing. They're just forgotten. So Jeremiah, he has an incredibly similar analogy in chapter 17, verses 5 to 8, where Jeremiah, he identifies the nothing in which the wicked are rooted as the strength of man. So the wicked person trusts in the things of the world to bring them joy, to make them blessed. They find their value in worldly things. They seek the blessed life by filling it with things that promise to deliver satisfaction, joy, and fulfillment only to deliver nothing. Only to leave them stranded between a rock and a hard place until the next breeze blows by and sweeps them into nothing. And so what are these things of the world? Um, it's another one of those phrases that we can just throw around and can mean whatever, but um, what are these worthless roots that promise security and only expose us to peril? What are these sources of value that guarantee joy but deliver death? that we look to for comfort. The strength of man can come in many varieties. So maybe, maybe it's a constant influx of new items delivered to our front door, especially when we're locked at home and can't go out. Maybe it's a big bank account with a constant upwards trajectory. Maybe it's a packed schedule filled with friends or right now Zoom calls and park walks. Um, maybe... Uh, Maybe it's a corporate ladder, uh, one rung up at a time. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's self-autonomy of owning a thriving and successful business. You're your own boss. So what, what things of the world whisper lies into your ears? Ask yourself this. What makes me anxious? What keeps me up at night? At what point will things not be okay? What can I not afford to lose? What do I need for everything to be okay? While most of the things that we worry about are not wicked things in and of themselves, a lot of the things that we worry about are good things, are blessings from God. But while many, uh, if these things keep you up at night, when, the, when we worry about these things, when we dwell on the possibility of losing these things and losing our joy with it, these are our roots of wickedness. And so where are you tempted to put down these roots of wickedness? And so, without fail, these wicked roots produce the fruit that's identified here in Psalm 1. The fruit of walking in the counsel of wicked, of standing in the way of sinners, of sitting in the seat of scoffers. These roots of finding your value and strength of man produce the fruit of wickedness. These roots can produce nothing else. And we see in the psalm that the blessed life has nothing to do with these fruits of wickedness. And so uh, the grammar structure of this passage actually makes it abundantly clear uh, that this blessed man has no part of any wicked fruit whatsoever. There's not a trace of wicked roots mixed in with the good. There's not even a passing thought of associating with the wicked here. And so uh, when it comes to the fruit of the blessed life, uh, walking with the wicked, never. Standing with sinners, never. Sitting with scoffers, never. 
there isn't a situation, like this, this isn't a situation where there's a cutoff point. And if I meet some X, Y, or Z percentile, if, I'm, if I have less wicked roots than somebody, or I produce less wicked fruits than somebody else, then I, then I make it and others don't. This isn't like graduating in the top 10% of your high school class so that you can get guaranteed admission to the school that you want to attend. This is an all or nothing situation. The blessed man has no part with any association with the wicked, not a whiff. And so where does that leave you? Where does that leave me? Have your ties to worldly things ever caused you to walk with the wicked? John says that, if I can transition, yeah. John says, if we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If there's no association with the wicked, if the blessed man has absolutely no association with wicked fruit, that means you and I are weeded out from the very beginning. Where does that leave us? It leaves us with roots anchoring us to nothing. It leaves us with leaving, leaves us exposed to the elements of a righteous God's judgment. So if you can't live the blessed life, if I can't live the blessed life, if Abraham if Moses, if David, if Gandhi, if Mother Teresa, if we can't live the blessed life, then who can? And there's only one man who's ever qualified to live the blessed life. There's only one man who loved the Father perfectly, never entertaining evil for a second. And so the opening word of this psalm, the very first word of all of this whole book, points us to that one man who, is, who does qualify to live the blessed life. And that man is Jesus. And so you and I, we've set roots of wickedness producing the fruit of disappointment. But Christ's roots run deep in fertile soil next to the river of life. Only he produces the fruit from these deep roots. He's the only one who's lived the blessed life. Nobody else qualifies. And so keep reading with me as we read about this blessed man. So blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And so do you hear the movement here from, from root to fruit? The root of the blessed life, its source of value, the very thing that, that fuels everything that it entails is delight in the law of the Lord. And then this root of this delight inevitably, inevitably produces the fruit of meditating on that same law day and night. And so this, this sounds really weird, doesn't it? I mean, this passage is telling us that the root of the blessed life is to delight in the law. You're telling us that the law is supposed to be what we wake up yearning for and it's supposed to be what we dream about in our sleep? The law? I thought this whole gospel thing was the opposite of legalism. So why in the world would the way to the blessed life be to delight in the law? Honestly, when I look at that and I think of the law, I think that sounds more like the cursed life to me. Hashtag cursed. That sounds like sitting in the room with, with this guy, lecturing you all day and liking it, enjoying it. 
Surely, surely this has changed. Surely, surely this is an old covenant thing that Jesus has wiped out with the new covenant, right? Like surely it's not the law anymore, but something better, something more beautiful. But then there's that one thing that Jesus said about the law. Do you remember in his gospel? A lot of folks thought that he had come to get rid of the law. They thought that he had come to abolish it, to make it obsolete. But he jumped all over that when he said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to keep it perfectly. When you look at the most important commandment in the entire law, to love your God perfectly, to love your neighbor perfectly, to use the language of Emmaus kids, right after that, it instructs that these laws be set up everywhere around your house. Why? so that you meditate on them every single moment of every single day. It even gives examples of when you're supposed to meditate on the law. It gives the example of while you're sitting in your house, when you're walking down the road, when you go to sleep, when you wake up, all the time, every single day and every single night. The law that Jesus came to fulfill, not to abolish, required a round-the-clock meditation on it, which first requires deep roots of delight around-the-clock delight in that same law. Jesus fulfilled the law because he delighted in it. The law was his joy. And so I think there's one distinction that is going to be super important in helping us come to terms with what this psalm means when it talks about the law. While this word here does uh, and can mean instruction or command, there's, there are also other words that the author could have used to refer to the law here. But he didn't use those. He chose one word on purpose. And the word that he used is also another word that refers to the overarching story of Scripture. It refers to the entire redemptive story of God's people. So in fact, these, the first five books that we find in our Bibles, the first five books of the Old Testament, which are mostly story, they're mostly narrative, they do contain commandments and instruction, but it's largely narrative. These first five books are called the law. The same word that's used right here, that's the delight of the blessed man. And so when this psalm talks about the law, like, yes, there are commandments. Yes, there, are, there is instruction, but there's also so much more than that. When it talks about the deep roots of delighting in the law, it's talking about delighting in the beauty of the entire redemptive narrative of God's bringing his people out of slavery and into life. So when this psalm talks about the law, it's talking about God's word. It's talking about scripture. So this is what the blessed man delights in. This is what Jesus delights in. This is what he's come to fulfill and succeeded in fulfilling. This was Jesus' happy place. Hashtag blessed. Hashtag truly blessed. And so then, in fulfilling this law, Christ, he becomes both the content and the fulfillment of the law. And so what that means is that this law, that it was beneficial for those who read it even before Christ came. Why? Because it pointed them to one who would come and fulfill it. It pointed them to one who would be called blessed. It contains the promise of the one who's coming so that they would wait for him. And then it also means for us that this law is now beneficial because it shows us what is good. It allows us to gaze into the face of the blessed man who fulfilled it. It allows us to gaze into the face of Christ. 
He fulfilled the law not because the law is evil and it needed to go away, but because it was good and it needs to stay. And I promise I did not intend to rhyme with that. But the law does not, it's not evil so that it needs to be eradicated. It's good. So it needs to stay. He came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And so if you and I, if we've been united in Christ, then the law, it gives us the opportunity to gaze into the face of Christ, into the same image that we are being conformed to every single day. God's word allows us to see what we are becoming, and it allows us to see where we're going in Christ. And so to meditate on the law is quite the opposite of legalism because it fixes our gaze upon the one who fulfilled that law, who completed it. To meditate on the law is to admit that where we fail, Christ hasn't. He succeeded. And in redeeming us, he also succeeds for us. He succeeds on our behalf. And so to meditate on the law is to meditate on Christ himself, the only blessed man. And so whenever we connect the dots here, whenever, whenever we see Christ in this psalm, whenever we see him as the blessed man, whenever we see him as the content that we're meditating on, we meditate on the law, the psalm opens up in a massive way to show so many more things than what are immediately apparent on the surface. When we follow the analogy of the blessed man, we see that in all he does, he prospers. So if Christ prospered in all that he set out to do, where do we see him prospering? Where do we see the clearest picture of Christ accomplishing the thing that he set out to do? We see that on a rough hewn cross where Christ hung bloody, ragged, downtrodden, rejected, a sheep led to the slaughter, prospering. It's here that he declared it is finished. It's here where Christ declared that he had succeeded. It's here that he has prospered. Isaiah says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. At the cross, we see Christ prospering. We see him succeeding in accomplishing the will of the Father for his glory and for our joy. We see Christ prospering in the most prominent point of suffering in human history. Isn't that so backwards from how we define what it is to prosper? This can't be the blessed life. He doesn't even have a latte. We joke, but in all seriousness, we cling to things and fear losing them when the joy of Christ is offered to us. But it's important for us to see that Christ prospering, it doesn't end at the cross. The only blessed man, the only one who was truly happy to delight in God's will displayed in the law, he didn't stay dead. 
His triumph through death was sealed in his victory over death. So his triumph through death was sealed by his victory over death. And so he rose to new life and he's united all who call upon his name to that same life in that same victory that he won in his prosperous death through his prosperous suffering. And so if you're suffering, if you're hurt, if you're discouraged, if you're lonely, if you feel abandoned, if you feel afraid, if you're at the end of your rope, if you're in Christ, you have one thing that cannot be stripped from you, and that's your delight in Christ. To prosper means to delight in the law of the Lord. To prosper means to delight in Christ, even in the face of everything that this world would call failure. No amount of suffering can take this from you. In Christ, you prosper in your sorrow because he's the man of sorrows himself who rose from the dead in joyful victory. In Christ, you prosper in your loneliness because because he not only shares in your loneliness, but he unites you to a heavenly family. In Christ, you prosper in your temptations and even in your failures because they bring you back again and again and again to everything that Christ accomplished on your behalf in order to bring a wretch like you and a wretch like me to the royal dinner table of the Father. In Christ, you prosper because he prospers. Even in our suffering, we prosper. In our failures, we prosper. In everything, we prosper, because he prospers for us. So in his mercy, he's cut us off from the tree of wickedness that's going nowhere. He's grafted us in to the tree of righteousness that has deep roots, growing up into a beautiful, eternal kingdom of heaven. And so I love how John Calvin talks about the joys and the, of joys and the sufferings of those who are in Christ. He says that when we've been grafted into his tree of righteousness, when we are united in Christ, I think, there we go. Uh, he says, whatever may befall them, is conducive to their salvation. Your suffering's not pointless because it's an avenue for the Spirit to transform you more into the image of the blessed man. Your joy is not pointless because it's an avenue for the Spirit to transform you more into the image of the blessed man. When you're in Christ, your suffering is conducive to you living the blessed life because it shapes you more into the image of the blessed man himself. And so whether we suffer or whether we enjoy comfort, let's receive each of these as blessings from the Father, as things conducive for our salvation. Let us look to Christ for our source of joy. Let our roots be anchored in the gospel of Christ, the law of God, so that we can delight in it. Let it bring us the joy that we were meant to have when God created mankind and he blessed them. Let us look to the law. Let us look to the, into the face of Christ and let us see the goodness there. Let us see his victory over death. Let us see his victory over suffering. Let us see his sympathy with us in suffering and let that bring us joy. 
Not, let's not look to all the other empty things that, we, that promise joy, but deliver death. And when we do look to those, let us be reminded that we've been grafted into the tree of righteousness with deep roots that grow up into an eternal kingdom, because that's where we're heading. And so as we delight in this law, let our hearts catch fire so that we can then rejoice and enjoy meditating on this law day and night, every single day, because this is what is good, that we're united in Christ, that we have life in him, that we're rooted in the gospel. And so let us then also uh, in Christ be called, legitimately be called the happy people. Let us be rooted deeply in the joy of salvation because that's what that salvation brings. So as we prosper with Christ in our rejoicing, uh, let us delight in him. Let us delight in staring into the face of the only blessed man uh, who brings us life. So pray with me. Father, we're thankful that you open up the Psalms in this way in a way that point us to, to Christ, point us to the only blessed man. And Father, I pray that as we come face to face with the ugly reality of the wicked fruit that we produce, I pray that you would instill within us a gratitude for you having grafted us into the tree of righteousness. And that's a work that you accomplish in your life in your death and in your resurrection, in your suffering and in your conquering. I pray that you would let us look into your face time and time again as you've shown in your word. And I pray that that would bring us joy. I pray that that would uh, mold us into a people who are truly blessed. I pray that uh, we would be a people that, that are truly happy in the, in the face of suffering, in the face of all the craziness of the world that's going on around us with the uncertainty of jobs lost, with just the confusion of everything going on in our cities and in our streets, uh, in the hurting in, in our brothers and sisters and in their tiredness, I pray that we might still be called and actually be a truly happy people because you give us that joy in the face of suffering. And we're thankful for that. And I pray that uh, you would remind us over and over and over again of what you have accomplished and how you have succeeded in our place. I pray that that would bring us joy. I pray that you would soften our hearts so that we could rejoice in your salvation. In your name we pray, amen.